We're going to be studying out of Malachi, an Old Testament book, beginning now through the fall conference. And we will see the amazing love of God and how it calls us to a new obedience. After the fall conference, I've been consulting with the elders about where to go in the preaching. And we're going to be picking up on that idea in 2 Timothy to hold to the pattern of sound words, which is to hold to a good, balanced doctrine in all your teaching. And so to help us in that, we're going to be preaching through the Bible but guided by the Heidelberg Catechism in 52 sections of doctrine. It will take a little more than a year because we have the Advent and Christmas and Easter seasons, but over a period of the next year or so, we're gonna be hitting the high points of Christian doctrine and a sound balanced theology, which I believe is consistent with 2 Timothy 1.13, to hold to the pattern of sound words. But now, with me, please open your Bibles, bring your Bibles with you week by week if you're able, and turn with me to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and we'll read the first five verses. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have, I, have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we lift up to you our hearts, thanking you for the great love you have for us. May we ever know its depth and how we should respond to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last autumn, we studied the prophet Habakkuk together, hearing Habakkuk's complaint against the wickedness of his own violence he saw there. And then he heard the Lord's statement that God would send judgment upon Judah at the hands of Babylon. And you may recall that when God said that he would correct the wickedness of Judah through Babylon, Habakkuk couldn't believe it. He says in 1.13, why do you hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Habakkuk viewed it to be unjust that the more wicked nation, Babylon, not in covenant relationship with God, would devour Judah, whom he considered to be more righteous than Babylon. And the Lord replied, the just shall live by his faith. Hang on and believe in the Lord for your righteousness and for your rescue. Accept correction, Judah, trust in the Lord, and watch his providence 
play out. And indeed, that providence did play out because Babylon itself was defeated by Cyrus the Great of Persia, defeating Babylon in 539 BC, setting the stage for the book which we start to study today. Indeed, Judah had gone off to exile in Babylon in 587 when Jerusalem was destroyed. But in that 538 BC, soon after Cyrus came to power, the Judean exile started to go to home to Jerusalem in three waves. The first wave at Cyrus's specific direction and provision. They went back in 538 under Zerubbabel's leadership to build a temple. The second group left 80 years later, 458 BC, led by Ezra the priest. And a third group returned a quarter century after that in 432 BC under Nehemiah, under whose leadership the wall around Jerusalem was rebuilt. Malachi prophesied during the time of Nehemiah. And we don't know anything about him particularly as an individual, but we do know it was at this time, because in chapter 3, which we'll get to, in verses 1 to 8, we see the Jerusalem temple had been rebuilt. It was assumed to have been rebuilt because abuses had entered in already in its use, the neglect of the Lord's ordinances in relationship to worship in the temple. Judah was a poor and struggling province, province with pressures to assimilate with the surrounding cultures through intermarriage. They were still under the control of Persia. The glory days were past. The exodus bringing them out of Egypt. The conquest of Canaan. The reigns of David and Solomon. There was a slide from power in both the north and the south sent off to exile. But now they had had a joy in return from exile. But the initial joy period was past. They had rebuilt the temple with excitement. But now the humdrum life in a little province of a great empire entered in. It's like our conversion sometimes when we're saved. If you had a conversion experience at a certain time, there's great joy, there's excitement. But then we look back at the humdrum of our life. We look at our finances, we look at our grades, we look at our life and we say, is this all this is meant to be? Anyone who has ever struggled with knowing and accepting that the Lord God loves you in the midst of the humdrum of life should hear these words at the beginning of Malachi, addressed to Judah, but also meant for us today. For all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for instruction. In this case, it's profitable for encouragement. And God inspired Malachi to lead out right up front and center with the love of God. I have loved you, says the Lord. And verse 1 preceding says, there was a burden of the word of the Lord, which Malachi brought to Israel. Speaking of the lower tribe, using the name of the whole Israel, representing the whole as the true heirs to the covenant promises at Sinai, he calls them Israel. And a burden is a weighty subject. It's an all-encompassing topic sentence. I have loved you. 
And the implications that this word has for God's people will be unwrapped in this book. It's something we need to know and embrace and believe in the days of trial in which we live. Days of sickness. Days of discord. Days of economic trial. Days of dismay over violence of many types from many people. These are the situations are in our nation, but just think about your personal situation. Insecurities, illness, irritations, or worse, in relationships. We need to know the reality of God's love, because if we're honest, has not the response of verse 2 at least been considered in our hearts, if not spoken with our lips? Yet you say... In what way have you loved us? What have you done for me lately, God? Can we admit that? Is it just God's people in the Old Testament who think such things or say such things? Just beneath the surface, we may wonder the same thing. And I want to call you back. Ian Duguid, who I was richly blessed to read in preparing these messages. Under the scorching heat of everyday hardship, and failed expectations, joy in God's love had quickly withered. Wasn't life supposed to be better than this? Unquote. I call you back to the embrace of God's life-transforming love and all the implications it will have. The book starts with that love, and it ends with an exhortation to live in faith out of that love and obedience. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, looking forward to the coming prophet, John the Baptist, who would stand in the role of Elijah, preparing for the coming of the Lord Jesus, our, the Son of God. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets, the last Old Testament book, and for over 400 years, there was a silence, but God put a lot in this last revelation for us. So let us learn today first of an exclusive love, verse 2. An electing love, verses 2b through 4. And a surprising love, verse 5. Verse 2, an exclusive love. When we read in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. The word for love is ahab. It's a primitive root that means to have affection for, sexually or otherwise. Now, in Malachi 1-2, the affection is in the otherwise category because God is talking through Malachi and he has no paganism about him. The biblical revelation is directly contrary to pagan gods like Baal with his consort Ashtarte. And there's never a hint of a Zeus coming down from Olympus to have relations with this or that woman. The word Ahab speaks to affection. A godly affection of God for his people. It's one of the Hebrew words for love. The other one that you may have heard from this pulpit is chesed. It's God's covenant love. Steadfast and permanent. 
And that it's appropriate to mention that word chesed in the context here because you see the capitalized Lord in verse 2. That's the word Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. So we think in other contexts of the Lord and his covenant love for his people as in Exodus 20, Exodus 34, 6. This is when Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai a second time to get the second set of uh, Ten Commandment plaques and the Lord passed before him. That's the covenant name Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, chesed and faithfulness. Now, both Hamad and Hesed are exclusive, and both are permanent. But the idea of permanence predominates in Hesed, while the idea of exclusivity predominates in Hahab, exclusive affection. It's the kind of love that we read about in Mark 10, verse 6. It's that love relationship between a husband and wife from the beginning of creation. God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't separate it. It's exclusive. It's meant for that partner. It's specific. Now, there is a general love and compassion that God has for all his creation, which is revealed in texts like Psalm 145, 8 and 9. It's an expression of God's common grace upon all humankind. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. John Calvin makes mention of God's love generally, such as he shows to the whole human race. We must never underplay this love for all which God holds in his heart. And he extends even to those who are rebels against him, those who right now are his enemies. We cannot underplay this general love because it can become a cover-up justification in our heart that we don't need to love everyone. Or as Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5.43, if we are truly to be adopted sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, we must love all. I read, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. How do you become a son of your Father in heaven? You become a son by showing the changed heart that comes by faith. A renewed heart that leads you to love your enemy. That's how you show you're a son of your Father. Because that's what your Father is like. He makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. 
Very good counsel for us in these days, which are fraught with political and cultural division. This is the general love of God. But the love of God mentioned here in Malachi is different. It does not extend to all of humanity, but to those that God is saving. Now that may sound to us as unfair. We may think that God is obligated to love everyone equally in every sense of that word love. But think of the nature of this specific word love, ahab, which is used in marriage and which deals with affection for a special someone. Can I really have affection for everyone in the world equally? Should I have affection for everyone in the world equally? Not in the marriage sort of way. What if I suddenly left town at the drop of a hat tomorrow to go back to Patterson to do inner city ministry in Patterson again, like I did 30 years ago? And I left my wife behind here to pay the mortgage on the basis of her substitute teaching. Even if there are great needs in Patterson, as we've heard about in the national news recently, I have a primary responsibility to love Lois exclusively, to care for and nurture. It's that kind of word we're dealing with. You can't argue with the language of Hebrew. It's that type of exclusive love. It's that kind of love which Christ has for his church. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. We do not all love everyone equally in the same sense of Old Testament affection. Christ, being the second person of the Trinity, loves the church only in this way. Christ is a one-woman man, and the church must be a one-man woman, a wife to him. And so the Lord here in Malachi 1-2 loves us in the same way. This love is directed to those that God is saving, but then God draws those people intentionally, exclusively, responsibly to live for him. We expect more in exclusive relationships. It's a relationship, a two-way relationship. When we're saved, we're brought into his church and we have higher responsibilities. Men, don't we expect more than our wives, than other women? Women, don't we expect more of our husbands than of other men? This topic sentence, I have loved you, then gives us a lot to chew on through the whole book. There's a dialogue that goes on. I, I, I just, you should hear some of the conversations. We got a 47 Hidden Hills. There's a little back and forth going there a lot of the time. And just like that, through this entire book, there's a back and forth. There's a dialogue. In 1.6, in what way have we despised your name? And in what way we have we defiled you? Well, it's in the relation to the act of worship. In 2.14, there's, there's a dialogue between these lovers. Yet you say, for what reason? And that's related to unfaithfulness in the covenant of human marriage. In 2.17, there's a question. God's people say, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? Well, it's in related to your despising of God's justice. Doubting that God would bring about justice. In 3.8, another question. But you say, in what way have we robbed you as related to our proper response to the Lord's faithfulness through tithing? And 3.13, yet you say, what have we spoken against you related to 
the reward for faithful service. There you got an overview of some of the themes we're going to be looking at, and they're all related to this love. It's all this dialogue. And we are called to give our very best for Christ because Christ gave his very best, his life for us at Calvary. Second, it is an electing love to be through four. Now we read in Acts 13, 48, that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Speaking of certain individuals, as many as, God elects individuals. He loves people personally and appoints them, choosing them. He saves them as they are regenerated, being given a new heart by the Holy Spirit, and then they believe the gospel. And that appointment happened before the foundation of the world. Turn with me for a moment, please, over to Ephesians and chapter 1, as we're going to hit a couple verses there. We'll bounce, but I'll give you the verse numbers. It says in verse number 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. See that? In love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. We are adopted. That's an act of love when you're brought into someone's family. And we are adopted as sons by Jesus Christ. Then read verse 7. In the beloved, that's Christ, we have redemption. The beloved comes from the previous verse. In the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We are given salvation by Christ's sacrifice. In verse 15, if you hop down there, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And so here's the faith that brings us into that relationship to claim it for ourselves and the love that we then have for the saints. In verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, we are brought into a body. We are not left as atomized individuals. We are brought into the church, and we are meant to live that out week by week through our public worship. We are chosen and loved in Christ before the foundation of the world, before we're even conceived or are sensible, conscious beings. We're adopted in Christ, made to be daughters and sons of the Most High God, the Heavenly Father, by virtue of being brought to the Father by our elder brother, Jesus Christ, brought into the family, introduced into the family of love by a brotherly, affectionate friend, Jesus Christ. The sin bearer who went to us, who laid down his life for us. Yes, we're incorporated into his Christ and we are loved by the Father before the foundation. We're loved by the Son as our groom. Now this is the very same electing love which God reveals in Malachi 1, 2 through 4. When Malachi when the people of Judah complain, in what way have you loved us? God replies, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? 
Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He states his love for his people as he declares his love for Jacob as contrasted with the hate he has for Esau. God's love for you is planned ahead. God's love for you is rooted in who God is, in the sovereign choice of his electing will, rather than who you are. What that means is you don't have to worry <coughs> about measuring up to stay in his good favor. When life seems to go wrong down here, we can get thrown into confusion, wondering if God is suddenly angry at us, and that's why things are going south. But having trusted in and received Christ as our Savior, knowing that this was because of what God chose before the foundation of the world, then we can be assured in our hearts that since we didn't plan it, we cannot pan it. Receive the embrace of God's electing love and get off the treadmill of works righteousness. For you are not saved by the works of your righteous deeds. You're not saved by a work of faith either. If you think you're in charge of your faith, that it's just your decision to believe in Jesus or not, that faith becomes a work also. But we learn from Ephesians 2, for salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Recall with me that both Jacob and Esau were very flawed men. Sinners, both of them, like you and me. Neither of them deserved to be saved, just like you and me. That's the whole definition of grace, the undeserved favor or the undeserved love of God for sinners. Esau was flawed in grandiose, in your face kinds of ways, like the bull and the china shop. He sold his birthright in exchange for a bowl of red stew, Genesis 30, 25, 31 through 34. Esau despised his birthright. That was an absolute act of unfaithfulness. He wasn't going to die. He said, I'm going to die. You don't die of hunger after one hunting expedition. Let's get real here. He wanted his God, his stomach, to be fed. He had an idol. It was his stomach. Paul writes in Philippians 3.19, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. And we learn also in Hebrews 12.16, he had another God, which was sex. He says in 12.16 of Hebrews, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. It was a God. Now Jacob was a more subtle in his sin. Ian D. Duguid puts it this way. If Esau had the brawn, Jacob had the brains. What is more, Jacob used his intelligence in ever more selfish ways to outwit his brother. Esau may have been impulsive, but Jacob's demand for the birthright in exchange for a bowl of soup is not exactly normal family behavior. Jacob then deceived his blind, dying father to obtain the blessing of the firstborn. Duguid asked the question, which of these men deserved love? Neither one. If anything, Jacob seems the more conniving and malicious of the two, unquote. Now, what did God do? Did he sit back and see what was going to happen as their lives unfolded? 
and then pick the less bad brother to receive the family promise? No. God declared before the birth that the older Esau would serve the younger Jacob. As Paul puts it in Romans 9:11, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. What shall we say then, verse 14? Is there unrighteousness with God? You think he's unfair? You don't think this is right? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Both Jacob and Esau got justice. They both got what? Both, both of them were treated fairly. Esau got justice, receiving eternal death in hell apart from the mercy of God. And Jacob got mercy. And the justice he received was in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who at the cross of Calvary poured his blood for all believers from the beginning to the very end of humanity. God is free to have mercy on whomever he will have mercy, pouring out upon them an electing love before the foundation of the world, sending his son to die for them, sending his spirit to regenerate their hearts so that they would believe. This is a text which should humble us, for there's nothing we do to deserve this salvation. As one commentator puts it, we are not superior to others through our own worthiness. Now, Esau's descendants did see destruction. You see it described here. They'll be called the territory of wickedness. The people against whom the Lord will have indignation. If they build up, I'll throw it down. And what happened is that when Jerusalem was falling in 587, the Edomites were, were uh, cheering on the Babylonians. In Obadiah, verses 10 through 14, they are cheering them on and they're assisting in the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's also referred to in Psalm 137. They say, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. They're taking glee in the defeat of their brother. But woe to them, because starting around the time when Judah was returning from captivity in 538 BC, Edom was conquered by three successive enemies. The last Babylonian king attacked them, Nabonidus, and then by a coalition of semi-nomadic tribes, Arab tribes. And then in the mid-third century, the Nabataean Arabs completely displaced the Edomites, and they never regained that land. They claimed in a haughty way, we have been impoverished, but we will return. But they never did. And we see that the Lord said, they may build, but I will throw it down. If we're living in willful rebellion against God, we will never rebuild our lives for eternity. Edom's destruction in a temporal sense is a picture of the unredeemed, reprobate sinner's final doom in hell. It says here that the Lord will have indignation forever upon them. You can be as successful as you want. You can be as wealthy as you want. You can mock believers as Edom mocked those Judeans when 
Jerusalem was falling. You can raise their churches. You can even convert their churches into mosques like they are doing in Turkey now. But they will suffer. They will receive the indignation of the Lord forever if they do not trust in Christ. There is no return for Edom. Jacob have I loved. Esau I have hated. And it is all of grace. The final point is this is a surprising love. Verse 5. We may wonder, what about me? What if I'm on the wrong list? What if I want to trust in Christ, but I'm not elect? I'm on the Esau list and not on the Jacob list. Well, verse 5 here in Malachi 1 addresses that. But first, let me take you back. Go back to Ephesians 1. One more moment, please. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, the verse just previous to the ones that we were reading a moment ago. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The blessing in heavenly places is in Christ. The predestination is through Christ. Predestination is always about Christ, meaning that Christ is always associated with the salvation of his people. From the very start, before the foundation of the world, to the finish line in glory. And what that means is you will never have an appetite for Christ unless Christ has been involved in it from the beginning. You can never say that you want to trust in Christ now apart from the fact that you were predestined through Jesus Christ at the beginning. There does not exist some list in heaven separated from the saving love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you can be sure that if the beauties of Christ and his sacrifice at the cross have won your heart and you know your need of a savior and you want him, it's because you are on the list. And that looking at Christ, who is called the mirror of election, looking at him, gazing upon him, trusting upon him, you know you're chosen. So don't worry about that. If you know your sin, come to Jesus. Come now. There's urgency in this because those who think it's just up to them whenever they believe and they can make their choice whenever they want to, well, those are the people who are presumptuous and the day goes apart. Today is the day of salvation. Come, don't presume on his mercies, but rather we should be always surprised that we're included, like in that hymn we're going to sing. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Can it be that I am going to gain an interest in his blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, who him to death pursued. But there may be some who still linger, who still wait, who still wonder. I wasn't raised in a church. You don't know how bad I've been. I believed in a different religion, maybe Islam or Hinduism for many years. I'm like Esau. My God is in my stomach. I'm out of control. You don't know me. Yes. Even for you, as you look here at verse 5, 
of Malachi 1, your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. The Lord is magnified among those who are not part of the covenant community, visibly evident at that time. Non-churchgoers, people had nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the church. And yet the Bible says here, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. How are you, how is the Lord magnified chiefly? Through the conversion of sinners. 2 Corinthians 4.15, for all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. When grace spreads through the many, that's when God gets glory. That's the greatest magnification of whom God is. So it is in the salvation of the Gentiles that is referred to here in verse 5. The Lord is magnified in the salvation of the outsiders. You don't have to be a certain nationality, a certain status. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to God. This was a resentful idea as Jesus preached the way God was working outside the covenant community in Luke 4 among his fellow Nazarenes. They tried to kill him. But it's the truth. Here is the great surprise. Now listen to this text. Amos 9, 11 and 12. Amos 9, 11 and 12. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Amos 9, 11 and 12. It says this, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. In other words, he's going to even take some individuals, a remnant, out of this nation that he's condemned. And he's going to say 